Welcome to Householders, a conversation about American life as Zen practice. I'm Inga Annie Wade. And I'm Kyosaku John Mitchell, and we're lay members of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center. We have this idea in Buddhism of anatta, no self or no soul. Mm-hmm. And this is always something that has really drawn me to Buddhism in a way because I've never had a really strong sense of self and I almost have to you know create a caveat for this uh, because I do have strong morals and you know I know I'm very self-aware and I know what my weaknesses and strengths are and everything like that but that to me isn't yourself I think those things change over time, you know? Um, I don't think I've had that those same weaknesses and those same morals that I've had, you know, a few years ago. Uh, just my sense of self has, has changed over time. And I've always thought of myself as such a quickly changing and adapting person that there really is no me, uh, or at least not a... A, a very static sense of that like some people I think do feel like this is them and like they're not really going to change that much um, and I don't want to say what is right or wrong but I, I do feel like there is this sort of um, in psychology this sort of idea that like if you don't have a strong sense of self then something's wrong mm. like you are anxious you have an anxiety disorder or something uh, like that or other kind of disorder where that makes you not have a sense of self. So I just wanted to get your opinion on like how you feel about your sense of self or lack thereof or um, whatever and how that fits in to your life or if you think that there if this is like different from what they're describing in psychology or if there's a connection at all. I, I, you said you said you've never had a strong sense of self. I kind of relate to that, but I think I have always had a sense of self. It's just not a local sense of self that I've had. I mean, we talked way back at the beginning about sort of early spiritual experiences, right? And like my first encounters with the the numinous, like the 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 beyond, happened in intuitive magical practices that were outside where I felt not separate from the whole world. And those were, those were not no self experiences. Those were, I am everything type of experiences. Yeah. And that the first thing that that actually did to me was it sort of untangled some of this stuff in Judaism for me. I sort of started to feel like that was what the Jewish teaching actually was. And that people who believed in, in sort of, duality didn't really get it but there still was so much language about souls that were bound up in identity in terms of like who i am and who we are and who you know who we are in the world and and jewish let's say jewish culture i'm not going to say jewish mysticism because i'm not sure this is true but like jewish culture around self and souls and certainly like death and what happens to the soul and birth and what happens to the soul definitely teach that there's some essence there for each of us. And I've never been sure about that. 
I think still that's different from sense. Like that's the thing I think we should talk about is like, what is a sense of self? Because the, the sense of self is probably where the mistake happens, right? The sense is something like, like, or like that identity that I am this, that is a sense, right? Mm -hmm. That like, it's not knowledge. It's not like something that you're certain of. It's like something that you feel and something that you think. And when Western psychology says it's important to have a strong sense of self, don't you think that that means something about sort of identity and continuity and that like what they're saying is it's not healthy to sort of expand and contract all the time and get closer and further from from reality? Uh, you know, you have to sort of stay here and be this. I would hope so. But I mean, I I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure what they mean either, actually. And, and, and so when you say, uh, I've never really had a strong sense of self. Are you thinking about that as a as a as like a juxtaposition that like Western psychology says it's important to have a strong sense of self and you're like, I don't have one of those. Does that does that worry you in some way? I mean, no, I don't think it worries me because I don't think I have I don't have it in the way that they say people don't have it. <laughs> OK, well, what do you mean? Well, I think that the way they they describe it, I think is that, you know, maybe you do have all these external, like, forces, like the way you dress and your job and your, I don't know, your the other things that surround you that maybe other people perceive as you, your mm -hmm. body, whatever. And then there's something above all that, above all your emotional center that has, like, probably, I'm guessing the frontal lobe is what they're referring to. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the logical part that makes that helps you make these logical decisions. And that's yourself. The integrator. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's what people describe as a soul. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. They're like, oh, well, someone is putting all these um, things together. Uh -huh. You know, someone's making these rational decisions. I don't think it's the emotional part because that's like hormones and. I don't know what else, but <laughs> I can have three different conflicting emotions at once. And yeah. What happens next is I integrate them into some story about who I am. And they don't want you to identify with emotions because identifying with right. emotions, you don't, I mean, they even teach you not to say things like I am angry, you know, like you'd say like, I'm feeling angry. And that's like less, like, it's not me. I'm not anger. I'm just feeling it. Um, and then that you could be like, so now my integrator is going to come in and I, it's okay to feel the anger. I'm just, that's just not who I am. I, I think it's really helpful to think of it that way, that there's, you know, a, a stronger, even if you want to call it a soul or whatever, but a stronger like part of you, that's the real you and everything else is just these other things you have to, you know, deal with to, to balance out you know, as the real you, but it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like, it kind of feels like there's just a lot of different yous, you know? <laughs> well, but the, the Zen, the Zen real you is bigger than that one too, it, right? Like the, the, it would certainly have to encompass the integrator self. I think that the, the Zen real you would be the, I don't know, maybe like the collection of everybody. 
Right. Like all of the conditions that are taking place right now. And so it includes you and it includes everyone you're in relationship with and everyone in your situation and the environment that you're in. Everything has a particular arrangement or situation at any given time. And that's that's what the self is in Zen terms, the real the thing that's real. There's because there's there's still something beyond that too, which is like everything all at once forever, where everything is one. And that's not uh, that's universal, but then there is also this other perspective on reality, the particular, you know, and like, we've talked a lot about the present moment as a, as a sort of meme, right. Uh, and, and lots of people with lots of forms of contemplative practice are really hung up on the present moment as the, as like the realist thing. And that's not the Zen teaching. The Zen teaching is there's two things that are both real everything all at once forever in every direction and this right here and so the present moment it's true that the present moment is is one of those two aspects of reality but another way of saying it might be the universal and the particular or the absolute and the relative like these are all terms that we use a lot but the uh, the word self uh or like self nature applies to that particular right? To this particular situation. And so when a te- when Zen teacher, like, you know, like Uchiyamaroshi likes to say a lot in his writing, everything I encounter is my life. And everything, everything, every Zen teacher has a version of that, I feel like. Everything I encounter is my life means to me that, like, you are my life, and my enemy is my life, and my samsara is my life. And that life is the real self. So like, it's true, like, yes, everything is the self, but it's everything right here. It's this particular situation. And that's the moment where, you know, karma is or is not in effect. It's like, there's, there's like skillful and unskillful ways to be in the present situation. And that is the moment of selfhood. Yeah, but I think that pretty much just sounds like, you know, having a self instead of not having one but the self is inseparable from its situation that's the thing like i I feel like the soul people think that you are this particular uh that you have like this advantage over everything else in the world that you are the free agent who can decide what to do and i don't think that that's the I think I think that that obviously like the situation that it's describing is is just one objective situation, but like Zen wouldn't describe it that way. It would say all of the causes and conditions, past, present, and future, have coalesced into this one moment, and your job is to get out of the way of the natural thing happening. There is a you with a job to do in the situation, but the job to do is nothing, right? Like the real, the real self is going to do the thing that is meant to happen. And the, the collection of contingent habits and patterns and, and uh, you know, impulses that we usually identify with as who we are and what we're doing is actually meant to just stop so that the real self can, take the action without it it's it's a pretty subtle difference of course but like what but it's one of those 
one of those things that's like confirmed in practice that the thing that we think we are in a given situation is not the place where the action comes from. It's, it's more like a reflex than a free choice. And I think, I think that gets at sort of the soul word and why that's not, why that doesn't work for me. And, and you know, and I presume it doesn't work for you either. Okay. Well, what, how is that different from a soul? I mean, I think you were saying because you could die and your soul does something else, like it goes to like heaven or hell or something <laughs> like that. And I know that's the difference you're getting at, but is there anything else that you would say is different from that? Well, I would just have to say that this that the the real self isn't an individual limited to you. It's not like the soul that you have in that situation is the soul of the world and the the impulses, the karmically conditioned impulses that that feel like the real thing that's happening, those those are gone in an instant. They're not they're not like some aggregate thing that that sticks with you. You're not it's not like that's to me the most problematic idea behind the religious soul is that your actions pile up in this record that the universe keeps track of that like determines your goodness or badness. The soul is is located by sort of religious beliefs that are very into souls. The soul is located in that bundle of karma. Uh, and that's like the opposite of what I believe. The soul is what's free of karma and acts in accordance with the way things are. And it can't do anything wrong in a sense, because wrong and right are judgments that, are made by an individual and an individual isn't a soul an individual is just uh one one aspect of the soul well i mean i think you're getting really philosophical and i i kind of want you to dis you said that you've experienced something in practice that would you know and i want you to kind of explain it more in like a down-to-earth way but <laughs> i'm sorry if that doesn't sound down-to-earth but to me nothing i've said is out of the realm of my immediate experience like that's, well, I that's just, uh, yeah well i i want you to explain your experience though yeah sure i could definitely talk about it in in a more relatable way the experience i have in zen practice is one of watching as unfolding happens without any effort <laughs> The, everything, everything that happens is is happening with no effort. The only effort required is to watch and not interfere. And what I have learned from doing Zen practice is that that remains true in getting up and going and doing things. The, the effort part comes along in two ways. It's either the effort to not interfere and allow what's happening to keep happening, or it's the effort to interfere and control and mess around, and that effort never succeeds. Well, uh, yeah, that okay. Well, can you like put yourself in a situation then? Just like what do you what do you even mean? Um, you, the effort of you trying to control things like give me an example i the reason i didn't just now is because everyone feels the same to me so picking one arbitrarily you know okay go, you're at work 
Sure. And you're trying to use you you know what you're doing, what you're practicing in in meditation, and not like you said, let yourself take control of the situation. Trying to be effortless. What does that look like? Okay. Well. In order to really be talking about this, you have to talk about the real situation. The more abstract and idealized of an example we use, the more I'm going to make up a story about some ego character about what would happen. It has to. So, so like this is already the Zen practice is starting. It's like, what is actually happening in this moment right now? And okay, so like I'm at work, I'm at my desk, an email comes in. It, okay. it contains a lot of things that I need to do in order to get back to the state I was just in of not having to do this thing. And so stress feelings are arising uh, and problem solving thoughts are starting to arise. And I'm watching myself thinking about how to so let's say first first thing the first thing required is a response to the message okay the first thing that arises might be an impulse a defensive impulse an impulse of like no i don't want this email i had nothing to do one second ago and now i have something to do you who sent me the message are the person who caused me to have something to do i, I am now feeling anger yeah yeah and there there have been many times in my life when i have written back like no f you basically to that in that situation and and I'm so familiar with uh what causes me to do that now uh-huh. that it doesn't last for more than 1 second so is it like the identification of those feelings like we were talking about before like I am angry now so yeah I'm going to do the angry thing yeah well it's I th- I think that one one problem in the situation is that that is that identity can be un- and often and maybe all almost always is unconscious. So so yeah. like the the writing back in anger thing is something that happens without like like involuntarily, right? Wow, I'm really sorry that Lila is screaming so loud in this entire episode. This is householder practice. Yes, it okay. is. I'm just t- I'm just acknowledging it it's so it ambience. doesn't. It, it's so that it doesn't <laughs> sound like I'm sitting here pretending it's not happening uh, to the people who are listening to this. Uh, I assure you, there are two adults with her right now, and they'll figure out what to do. <laughs> so, the first step that happens that changes this email from like an angry defensive reaction into a skillful response is uh, noticing the reaction. Yeah. And noticing the reaction doesn't even have to be a complete accounting of what's happening, what I'm actually reacting to, to break it from this like I, I am like equal sign, a giant raging torrent of anger. Mm-hmm. I don't have to get all the way to... I am angry because I feel defensive of my time and this email created a new imposition on my time in order to stop short of sending that message and go like, whoa, okay, I feel really angry right now. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, I think it can kind of be like a baby crying. Yeah. Because it's always... It is. (laughs) Like... I know it's there. I can hear you, but mm-hmm. I don't. I don't want to be the crying baby. Yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. And so, so what happens? So, so right. So it starts off as this like infant response, and then it like goes through this process of maturation or something. And so, one of the things that 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 kicks in immediately after this, and I'm not doing any sort of like advanced Buddhist practice here, except in. 
identifying all of these parts of the reaction because this is all happening in a split second. But like, this is what everybody who is able to like respond to their coworker in a way that isn't like an immature, impulsive fu email is able to do. The next thing that kicks in is like, oh, relationships. I know that person. I trust that person. I also know that that person is also in a stressed out situation and needs something, needs some help. My job is to help that person. So, you know, my job isn't to do whatever stupid thing. My job is to take care of this person on my team. And in doing so, we'll fix the problem. You know, we'll get it, we'll get it all done, however we do it. And so then it moves into the mode of communication from, from the mode of reaction to the mode of communication. It's like, I have to put myself into their, and here come the self words, right? Like I have to put myself into their situation. I have to think about how I talk to that person. I have to think about our shared language for things. I have to think about all of our inside jokes about all the silly work that we have to do day in and day out. And I have to translate out of that some kind of message it has to mean the same thing to me as it means to them. How do I'm just going to like sort of cheat and skip ahead to like talking about self and no self. Like how do you ma- how do you communicate something that means the same thing to two different people? You have to be a bigger self. You have to speak from the voice of both people instead of the voice yeah. of one person. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like some big profound mystical experience, but really that's just what communication is. And 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 if anything the existence of communication is just sort of evidence that self is a group experience. And so, so, so that, so just like, that's the, I can skip all the other work details and just say like, it happens very early on in the process of dealing with a situation Uh that I step out from, I am an individual who has a thing I'm doing in my life and it's on track to, Oh, something has knocked me off track to the track I'm on now is actually the track I was always on along with everyone else. And that's the reality. The real self is the self that has this problem to solve, not the one who didn't have this problem to solve five seconds ago and suddenly does now. And now is like his life is over. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying. And thank you for indulging me on the the specifics of, of what you were saying, yeah. because, uh, I mean, I think I think this happens a lot in our conversations where uh, you're more of like the the philosophical uh, voice and the the, it's very, very abstract thinking. And I'm like, well, I need to know how this is making sense Mm -hmm. in our everyday life. And I'm going to try to relate that to to things. But uh, I've never tried to, like, make you do that. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious. I'm glad you did. I mean, I'm glad you (laughs) called me out. But it's like, I just want to be very clear. Like, I didn't, it's not that I don't know I'm speaking in abstract language. It's it's that I experience reality in very abstract language. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, I think I think we all do. I think uh, maybe some people like to more have that abstract become concrete things they can apply more easily or something Mm -hmm. than others so i think it was always a a pretty good dynamic to have both in a conversation so yes absolutely a little bit of 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 each one each idea um i mean i think this this whole you know anata no no soul no self i think can be really helpful in a lot of different ways you know knowing that we're not our bodies and not our uh, what we think is identities the more i practice that idea the more i can 
lose the attachment to how I look physically or mm. how my body is performing or um, any other statistics or measurements mm. that we probably give ourselves on a regular day basis, which I'm, you know, I'm very hard on myself. So those statistics, those, I those ideas of my identity can be, can be very strong. And then at the same time, I could wake up one day and, and just be like, wow, none of that is me. Mm. What am I? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's such a profound feeling to, to, to think I don't really know who I am, but not in the way that like I was saying earlier, that like gets you to do things that wouldn't be within your morals or not understanding your strengths and weaknesses and not being self-aware of yourself. That's, mm -hmm. that's not what I mean. It's things can change really rapidly for me in the past few years, things have changed a whole lot or even just, you know, once I graduated, it's like, Oh, I'm no longer a student. I'm a, you know, an employee, a career woman kind of thing like that. That means something different. And, uh, you know, my hair changes colors and my body changes and everything. And sometimes those things can can move so quickly that if though if that is what you think that yourself is, mm. then it would be a constant state of of loss, mm. 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 a constant state of, you know, because all those things are impermanent and it's not helpful to think of that as ourself because at the end of the day, those things are, are going to be gone at some point. Mm -hmm. And does that mean that you're gone too? I mean, I guess that's fine if you, if you want to think of it that way or like, you're like, maybe that's why people came up with a soul because they're like, okay, maybe that isn't what I am, but I want to, I still want to continue mm -hmm. going on after the other thing that I thought was myself is gone. <laughs> but yeah, that 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 is kind of what I was I was thinking because it happened recently where I was just sitting in my room and I'm like I don't have that sense of identity right now. I don't have that attachment to uh, the way I look or I sometimes don't even know how I look mm. at a given time mm -hmm. because it's not the me I'm attached to. I mean, but sometimes I am. So it's it's something that I think can be very helpful even though it's, as we have seen, can be a very complicated concept and can be interpreted in a great many ways. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the weird thing about it, right? On the abstract conceptual level, it can be put very simply, as long as you just accept that you, that you know what the words mean it, when you say, I am everything. Right. Like I am an entire universe, but an entire universe is inclusive of all of the perspectives that are available in that universe. And so the thing that people identify with as a mistake, like let's just leave Western stuff out of it. Like the illusory self in Buddhism is actually a perspective on the self. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's identifying with a single perspective that is the mistake. And so your perspective right now has like its particular attitudes and feelings and its morals and, and, and values. And those are a situation within the global self and they are what they are. But to be able to inhabit that and still be able to say, as you just said, what am I to ask? What am I is the wisest possible stance 
because what am I is such an interesting question, right? Like there is a sort of implied thing, entity, am. Right. Like what am I? Like like something, you are something. And the answer is like, you can't encompass all of what you are inside of one perspective. So all you have is this perspective that you have now that is able to ask this question of like, what is the rest of it? The reason why Buddhism isn't a nihilistic religion, I'm going completely, totally, I studied philosophy in college now. The only reason that Buddhism isn't a nihilistic religion that says nothing exists, that's what a lot of people think when they hear no self. They think nothing is real, everything is delusion. But that's not true. Because if you're here sitting sitting here asking the question, what am I? The only thing that makes any sense to do is to try and go find out. And you just go find out by having more perspectives on what it is. And two perspectives is infinitely more informative than one. And three is infinitely more informative than two. And the more perspectives you're able to have and inhabit, the more you understand about what your true nature is. And eventually, as we believe and practice, that number of perspectives coalesces into or, and gives way somehow into a perspective much bigger than usual. And that's big enough to confirm like, oh, this is what I am. And in a moment, I won't be it anymore. Householders is a production of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Silent Thunder Order. Find us on the web at ASZC.org. Our Sangha depends on your support. You can donate by PayPal to donate at storder.org. Gasho.